This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin, and today I'm joined by our senior fellow, Sam Jeske, and Dr. Angela Rasmussen, who's a virologist at the Columbia University School of Public Health and a Forbes contributor. Dr. Rasmussen, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. So let's go ahead and dive right in because I'm sure uh, these are very busy times for you. If you wouldn't mind providing our audience with a bit more about your background, the formal work that you do, and I believe you have a perhaps a more formal title at Columbia other than virologist, if you wouldn't mind explaining all of that to our audience. Sure. Um, so I'm a virologist, uh, but my official title is associate research scientist, which essentially means um, junior faculty without any teaching uh, responsibilities. Um, my specialty is studying the host response to emerging viruses. Uh, so in the past, I've worked on um, emerging viruses that many people are familiar with, such as Ebola and MERS coronavirus, as well as um, avian influenza and some other uh, hemorrhagic fever viruses that are a little less well-known, um, Lassa and Lujo viruses. Uh, Right now, I am still working on many of those viruses, but I also am beginning to look at host responses to SARS coronavirus 2, which, as many of us probably have heard, causes COVID-19 um, using, at first, a rhesus macaque model, so a non-human primate model. Eventually, we're hoping to uh, start developing some novel mouse models uh, for studying um, SARS coronavirus 2 pathogenesis as well. Awesome. Starting to get into questions, um, do you have any thoughts comparing methods that different countries around the world have taken to combat COVID-19? So, for example, Sweden um, has not put any mandatory lockdown orders in place and has opted for trying to achieve a sort of herd immunity through exposure. What are your thoughts on this model versus other countries um, trying more mandatory lockdown, lockdowns and shelter in place orders? So I don't, I don't think that there is one single right way to go. Um, for example, uh, South Korea, as far as I know, has not instituted any nationwide lockdown orders, but they have such um, incredible testing capacity that they were able to rapidly test and then trace and isolate uh, infected people, thus preventing community spread. So lockdowns are not necessarily... Um, required to control the virus in a given country, depending on what their testing capacity is. But in Sweden, um, they haven't had that testing capacity, as far as I'm aware. And so the lack of lockdown uh, or stay home orders in Sweden has resulted in them having a much higher death rate than some of the neighboring countries in Scandinavia, and appears to effectively not really be working. Um, I would say that in my own personal opinion, any policy that is not going to minimize the number of cases and minimize the number of deaths is a policy that is relatively ineffective. 
And you mentioned testing in South Korea in particular. South Korea and the United States, correct me if I'm wrong, had the first known case of COVID-19 on the exact same day. And this is a a tale of two different responses, effectively. Um, Do you think that we have adequate testing capacity here in the United States? No, I don't. I think that um, our testing capacity is far from adequate. Um, What we are gonna need to reopen the United States, and this will be different in different communities, how much testing needs to be done, but what we're going to need to be able to go back to work and start uh, sort of cautiously reopening our economy is for people uh, to go out and be able to be regularly tested uh, if they have not, if there's no evidence that they've been exposed before. So if somebody tests positive with an antibody test, Um, they probably don't need to be tested all the time. But somebody uh, who has not had COVID yet and um, is antibody negative is still susceptible to getting the virus. So those people, if they're going to be going out, um, interacting with others, potentially being in crowds, uh, those people will need to be tested at least once a week, I would say, um, in places where there are relatively high infection rates in the population. And the reason that needs to happen is that um, we do know that a lot of the transmission that occurs is um, in pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic people who don't know that they're actually sick and capable of transmitting the virus. So if we don't have that testing capacity in place and we all sort of venture out of our houses again, um, we are going to be right back to where we are now uh, or right back to where we were in early March, where there is a lot of community transmission occurring and that's not being detected because we don't currently have that testing capacity. So part of your vision for a new normal, if you will, is weekly testing for people who don't have the antibodies but are trying to return to some sense of normalcy. Who would be responsible for running those tests? Would it be the localities, the states, the federal government? So that that is probably a question that can be more accurately answered by somebody who is working with a state or local health department. But my understanding is that it it largely would be those state um, and local uh, public health authorities who would be doing that. And many states, including Washington State, where I am right now, have begun to hire people to do the contact tracing, um, as well as the increased testing that will be necessary to do this uh, test and trace um, reopening approach. But certainly in every state in the U.S., uh, it's going to require really an army of people. Got it. And so now, obviously, before we can get to that um, more comprehensive testing strategy, there are still things that people need to do in their daily lives. Um, so there's been a lot of debate about what pr- personal protective equipment or methods that people should use when they're going out and doing things like grocery shopping, for instance. Um, what would you recommend people do when it comes to different types of masks or gloves when they're doing things like grocery shopping or essential tasks in their, in their everyday lives? So some of this um, comes down to people's personal comfort, Uh, but people should be aware that there is a wrong way to use gloves, um, to use masks. Uh, And right now, given that we still are having PPE shortages um, that essential workers really need to be safe themselves, um, under no circumstances do I recommend that people wear uh, N95 particulate respirators um, or any other type of, of mask that will provide the wearer with protection. Um, Again, those need to be reserved for the the frontline healthcare workers and other essential employees 
who really need to be protected um, in environments where they can't physically distance. For everybody else, um, I do wear a mask myself. Um, I have a homemade mask um, that I wear, but I wear it with the understanding that the mask alone is not protective to me. The main the main benefit from wearing a mask um, of any kind for your average person is that it protects other people from respiratory droplets that you are producing. So if you don't know that you're infected, you're pre-symptomatic, um, you're wearing a cloth mask, that's going to reduce the amount of virus that you could potentially be spreading out into the environment around you. So it's really critical that if you are wearing a mask that you are very careful about how you wear it. Um, don't touch the mask while you're wearing it. Uh, don't, you know, just like you wouldn't touch your face, don't touch the mask. Remove it and wash it uh, when you're done using it or throw it away and, and make a new mask. Um, I don't wear gloves in the grocery store, specifically because I do wear gloves in the lab. And really, gloves, gloves are meant to protect um, your hands uh, from any chemicals or infectious agents you might be working with. But we change gloves a lot in the lab. We, we get rid of them frequently. Um, in the grocery store, a better approach for me anyways is to just wash my hands and be diligent about using hand sanitizer because certainly my hands are easier to disinfect than uh, carrying a bunch of gloves with me and finding a safe place to dispose of them. Um, otherwise, I think that the, the key points to, to recommend to everybody, even after uh, we do open back up and people are able to go out or whether it's just going to the grocery store now, is that really physical distancing is um, one of the most effective ways when coupled with good hand hygiene. So uh, when you're going to the grocery store, try to go to the grocery store during off hours when there's not as many people there. Go to a grocery store that allows um, only a certain number of people into the store and practices good distancing for the people waiting in line and hopefully uh, go to a store that is able to provide some sanitization wipes or hand sanitizer or bring your own um, so that you can keep your hands safe and clean uh, while you're while you're shopping or doing your errands. All of that is fantastic advice. And, um, you know, one of the slogans that I saw being rolled out, I think it was from a European country, and it basically said something along the lines of, you know, my mask protects you and your mask protects me. Because like you said, it's not designed to protect you from outside things. It's, it's designed to prevent you from spreading it from others. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, and yeah, I should say that it reduces um, the amount of droplet production, but it depending on what the mask is made of. And when we're talking about homemade masks, we're talking about a, a pretty wide variety of different materials and construction techniques and et cetera. So um, I think that it's really important to say that when you're wearing a mask, a cloth mask or homemade paper mask, um, it, it provides additional protection uh, to people around you, but it doesn't necessarily completely protect them or pro uh, completely prevent respiratory droplet production. So the, the key is if you're wearing a mask, that's wonderful. Um, and it's everybody should consider doing that because as you pointed out, um, it does protect other people. Um, and that in general helps protect all of us by, by reducing the potential for community transmission. But um, to, to not focus solely on mask wearing, um, the, the hand hygiene and physical distancing precautions are really important too. And now you mentioned earlier that you have experience working with other infectious diseases like SARS and MERS and, and even Ebola, something that's been 
I guess, proposed as a, as a possible solution or I guess mitigating factor would be the summer or warmer weather helping to slow the spread. Is, is this something that is likely to happen or in your experience, does, does weather play a part in the rate of, of infection among, among people? So it can, and certainly with diseases like influenza, um, common cold viruses, uh, there is a seasonality component. Um, it's a little more complicated, though, than just the weather. So some recent data um, from Akiko Iwasaki's group at Yale has shown that in the winter, um, in lower temperatures and lower humidity conditions, people are actually more susceptible to getting respiratory uh, virus infection. Um, and that's because their immune systems, their immune responses are, are actually different to, at least in that case, influenza virus, um, when the weather is, is colder and less humid and drier. Um, there's also evidence that would suggest that this may not be seasonal, since there's certainly been widespread transmission in places that do have hotter, more humid weather, such as Singapore, um, and here in the United States, such as Florida. Uh, so there's really no indication that this particular virus is necessarily going to be seasonal. That said, um, there is some new data that shows that sunlight can inactivate the virus relatively quickly under at least experimental conditions, um, and that, that the virus is also uh, does better um, in cooler temperatures and in lower humidity conditions. So it is possible that we could see a reduction in transmission of this virus over the summer, but it's also completely possible that we might not see that. And I think it's really unfortunate that the state of Georgia has sort of decided to, to just open back up with, with very few restrictions and no real plan that I can see, because that is really going to be actually a test case. Um, if we do see cases spike again um, in the next few weeks as businesses open back up and people are getting into crowds and getting around other people again, um, that will be occurring in May, June when it's relatively warm in Georgia. Um, that might indicate that there really isn't a seasonality component. But at this time, it's really hard to say. And the only way we're going to figure that out is to kind of wait and see what happens over the summer. Awesome. So you recently wrote a super interesting article for Forbes um, about how long COVID-19 can last on different surfaces. Um, I highly recommend that all listeners take a look at the article. It's super informative. But for those who haven't had the chance to read it yet, can you explain what your main points were and kind of highlight uh, the argument? Sure, of course. Um, I think you're, you're talking about the article I wrote of, with regard to how testing works. Um, and so this is a really important point that I think gets missed a lot uh, when you're not talking to virologists um, and when the media is reporting it in the press. And understandably, nobody wants to watch the news and see a big, long report about how PCR works versus a plaque assay. Um, but one thing that's really important for people to understand is that the PCR test that looks for virus, um, that's the test that we hear about. And there are a bunch of different kinds of these tests now at this point that are available for use, but they all use the same technique. And that is that they, they use a method called PCR to detect the genetic material of the virus, which in this case is um, a molecule called RNA that's pretty similar to DNA. Uh, so you can, you can have viral RNA in a variety of different contexts, including infectious virus particles, but not limited to those infectious virus particles. So um, the test will measure the virus genome, but it won't measure infectious virus. 
And so when there were reports that um, people were finding RNA on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, you know, a month after people had gotten off of the ship, um, in some patients, they've reported detecting virus in patients um, long after they've recovered. And then we've heard all these cases of, about so-called reinfections where people test negative and then they test positive again. A lot of times this, this doesn't mean that these people have actually been reinfected. It might mean that they just have extremely low levels of viral RNA that are persisting in them or persisting in the environment, as in the case of the cruise ship. Um, that can be detected by the test, but doesn't correspond to an equal amount of infectious virus that could actually cause an infection. And the way we look at infectious viruses in the lab is by doing um, one of two tests called a plaque assay or a TCID50 assay. And both of these assays look at how well virus in a sample can kill cells in a cell culture dish. So um, if you have viral RNA and you just put it on cells in a culture dish, nothing's really going to happen. Um, if you put actual infectious virus particles on those cells, uh, then the infectious particles will infect the cells and kill the cells in the immediate vicinity. And so you can use that to sort of quantify how much infectious virus you have in a sample versus how much just overall viral genome. What people seem to be getting wrong when they're like, oh my God, people are still, are getting reinfected and they're testing positive for months and they could be infectious for months. Um, we can't tell that unless we're actually looking for infectious virus. And so far, to my knowledge, nobody has found that infectious virus persists for weeks in the environment um, or that recovered patients are shedding infectious virus for weeks at a time. Okay. So kind of just to make sure I'm understanding you, um, essentially there's this RNA that we can find long periods of time after the initial virus was found at a certain source, but that RNA might not actually be infectious anymore at the point it is found? That's correct. So RNA viruses like coronaviruses make a lot of mistakes when they're copying their genomes um, because their genomes are RNA. And oftentimes, a lot of those genomes are defective. They don't actually work. Um, so they might, they might just sit around in the cell. They might get packaged into the capsid, which is the shell on the outside of the virus. They might actually even bud out of the cell and look like an infectious virus particle. But if that genome inside is defective, if there are mistakes in critical parts of the genome, it's not going to cause an infection and it's not going to be able to replicate. However, the PCR test only looks for a little piece of that huge um, 30,000 base pair RNA genome. And so if you even have a little piece that has that same, that same little stretch of RNA that that test is looking for, you're going to detect it. But oftentimes that RNA might not be present in the context of an actual um, replication competent genome in an infectious virus particle. Got it. Thank you so much for the clarification. So on that same topic, um, people are kind of worried about bringing things into their home, such as groceries or packages that get delivered. Um, to, do you think people should be wiping down those things before they bring them into their home? Or if they want to leave them outside on a porch, like a package, for instance, how long should they leave it outside before they want to bring it in? Um, what, are, what are safe methods to deal with things like that? So this is, this is something that really does come down to, I think, personal comfort. So personally, I don't uh, quarantine my groceries or packages. Um, I just wash my hands after handling uh, items that have been someplace else and have now come into my home. Um, 
if you feel, however, that, you know, you're just not going to be comfortable unless you like let your packages sit in the garage for 24 hours um, or, you know, you wipe them down with a disinfectant wipe. That's totally fine. It's not going to hurt anything. I mean, depending on what the package is made out of, you probably won't have a lot of success, you know, wiping down a paper package with bleach. Um, but uh, certainly it doesn't hurt anything to let things sit, uh, you know, in another room or on your porch or wherever um, and not touch them for 24 hours. But in, for me um, and the level of risk that I'm comfortable with, it's pretty low risk in general that you would actually be exposed through handling a package. Um, the risk is really hard to quantify, but in general, um, the, the likelihood of you touching the exact spot that a recently infected um, person touched uh, in the, the near past, um, as well as then touching, getting enough virus on your hand from touching that spot, then touching your nose and getting an infection is actually a pretty low probability of that happening. So for me, um, the, the level of risk is such that I'm comfortable just um, putting my groceries away and washing my hands and then washing my hands before I uh, cook food with them, for example, or opening my mail and then again, washing my hands, throwing away anything I don't need. Uh, those, those types of um, methods of, of uh, sort of risk reduction are fine for me. But if you feel more comfortable doing something more extreme, uh, be my guest. I don't want to tell anybody not to do something that, that would make them feel more comfortable. But this really does come down to an issue of personal comfort, I think. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. I want to transition a little bit here and start to get kind of more forward looking for the latter half of this. Um, what do you, in, or in your opinion, what are the prospects of a vaccine? How long do you think this type of de development could take? And is there reasonable belief that we will be able to get a working vaccine? I, I think I saw something that the quickest vaccine ever created was four years, and that was for mumps. Granted, it was you know decades ago, but this seems like a very aggressive timeline when the president, the White House, and others are saying we could have one within a year. Is that reasonable? I think that that's very unlikely. Um, and, and this this is where, this is definitely my opinion. Um, 
you know, I hope uh, that that we can certainly get a vaccine out within a year, year and a half, um, as some of these more optimistic estimates have have given. Um, I just think that it's as you pointed out, even though it was decades ago, we just we've never developed an effective vaccine this quickly. Um, Developing a vaccine on these accelerated timetables means that you're invariably going to have to cut out um, certain parts of a vaccine study. So normally the way the vaccines are developed is they are tested in preclinical animal models um, to make sure that they're safe. Then they're tested in humans to see if they're safe. And then they're tested in way more humans uh, to see if they are effective um, as well as safe and how long the immunity they produce lasts. In this case, we don't have the luxury of that time to, to do that scale of a clinical trial. And I should add that the way that efficacy is normally tested for vaccine development is you vaccinate a ton of people and then you follow those people over time to not only see if they've developed antibodies in response to the vaccine, but to see if any of them actually get what you're vaccinating them against. Um, after a certain period of time, you know, the probability has it that some of those people would have been exposed. And if nobody's getting it, you can conclude that the vaccine works. Um, obviously, if people are, if the same amount of people are getting it as unvaccinated people or even more people are getting it, then your vaccine either doesn't work or actually is harmful. Um, fortunately, that doesn't usually happen. Most vaccines do have some level of e- efficacy. But um, we are, it, it just kind of depends on which parts they're willing to cut out, I guess, to, to develop it on these really accelerated timetables. If a vaccine is really, really good and really effective against COVID, it is possible that if you started an efficacy vaccine now, um, in a few months, you might be able to say, well, we know what the prevalence is in these communities that these vaccine trial subjects um, are experiencing we expect that this number of people would have been infected. And if you don't have that number of people being infected, perhaps that's a sign that the vaccine is effective. Um, but I still think that you know, 12 to 18 months is extremely ambitious and extremely optimistic to even make that determination about efficacy. Make sure that you've looked at enough patients, the study's sufficiently statistically powered, um, much less to actually come up with a plan to manufacture that at effectively global scale. Um, and that that uh, manufacturing and supply challenge is not insignificant either. Um, that is something that normally takes months and potentially years to do to scale up vaccine production to the point where you could distribute it widely enough around the world that we would be able to achieve herd immunity against this pandemic virus. So I, you know, I hope that we are able to uh, develop a vaccine within that year, year and a half time frame. But I'm also um, skeptical that that we'll actually be able to do that. So looking forward again, um, what are some concrete steps that you think we could take as a society or as a government to prevent outbreaks like this from happening again or to be better prepared for them if they do happen? Definitely. There are a number of things and many of them uh, involve government funding of various scientific research um, enterprises. Um, that, that means funding basic research into, you know, what is this virus? Like going out and actually looking for these viruses, similar to what the PREDICT program was doing, but then also funding work to evaluate how, um, how do we prioritize those viruses? How do we 
say of all these thousands of viruses we know that are in wildlife out in the world, which ones are the most likely to be human pathogens? Um, so by understanding more about the ecology of all these viruses, we can reduce our risk of having them spill over into the human population and cause uh, an epidemic or a pandemic. Another area we need to invest in is vaccine research. So testing some of these experimental vaccine platforms so that for a future pandemic, um, we would be able to rapidly uh, de develop a vaccine. And another area is developing broad spectrum antivirals. So we have very few antiviral drugs, and many of them are very specific for the types of viruses that they are used to treat. So HIV protease inhibitors, for example, are specific to HIV. Tamiflu um, is specific to influenza virus. And while some of these may have some cross-reactivity, um, we really need broad spectrum antivirals that can target a lot of different types of viruses. That way we'd need to know less about which viruses are going to emerge because we'd have drugs that we could use to treat whatever type of virus emerged. So all three of those. And then um, certainly we also need to focus on uh, certainly updating our, um, our political leadership's ability to sort of nimbly respond to these types of infectious disease threats. It, you know, certainly my opinion um, is not high of the U.S.'s response to this. There have been really unacceptable delays in even rolling out the testing. Um, those delays are actually still influencing our testing capacity. Um, all of those, those types of preparedness, so having the supplies on hand, having our strategic stockpiles of PPE, for example, um, well-stocked and ready to go, ready to be distributed, uh, those types of issues need to be addressed as well. Um, and I think that, you know, this hopefully will be a learning experience for how we can both be prepared scientifically, as well as how our government can be prepared just logistically and practically for responding to pandemic threats in the future. And then so on a societal and community level, do you see any kind of so social norms that we think of as completely normal now? Do you think any of those should go away and transition to something else? Do you think they will? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, speaking as, um, as a woman, uh, I would be delighted if um, the, the sort of professional customs that require us to touch each other <laughs> um, go away. So um, handshaking, I guess, is okay. But, um, you know, let, let's cut down on all the, the uh, sort of gratuitous hugging and cheek kissing that sometimes occurs in professional circles. Um, I think that maybe people might be more conscious also of hand hygiene and uh, and sort of their their own risk um, as well as the risk that they might present to others. I think that that one thing that's good is that you know the mask thing. People have started to see this as something that they can do to protect other people, and I hope that that is um, something that people keep in mind going forward because it certainly benefits all of us if everybody is more sort of community minded than thinking about themselves. It's funny that you mentioned the hand hygiene. I, I don't think I've ever washed my hands more in my life than in the last six weeks during this pandemic, nor have I ever been so conscious of how frequently I touch my face, my eyes, my ears, my nose. It, it's really made me become aware of everything that I do with my hands and what I'm touching and then what I touch after that. So it's definitely been eye-opening for me. I do want to circle back now uh, for one of my last questions here. 
here. You mentioned the use of antiviral drugs. Um, just this week, we've seen some news around uh, a promising treatment, I think using a drug called remdesivir, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which apparently is an anti-malaria drug. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's established himself as a kind of truth teller in, in this administration, he came out and said that he thinks that this is really promising. Have you had a chance to dig into that? Do you have an opinion on what that treatment could look like? And is it as promising as, as it seems? Yeah. So um, let me just clarify one thing really fast. So remdesivir is the drug that that has been discussed today. Um, And in fact, uh, Dr. Fauci made those remarks, I believe, this morning. Um, So remdesivir is actually an antiviral drug. The malaria drug that you mentioned is actually hydroxychloroquine, which. um, Oh, I see. I'm sorry. President Trump was very excited about. uh, But has been shown um, to perhaps not be as effective, although still um, we have not seen conclusive clinical trials that show one way or the other whether hydroxychloroquine actually is effective. Um, remdesivir, the, the data is a little bit better, um, but it's still, it's still hard to say. So um, I haven't seen a paper that actually shows the data. What what Dr. Fauci mentioned today was that patients taking remdesivir um, in a controlled study had a significant reduction in the amount of time that they were sick. They they got better faster. And there was also a reduction in mortality overall. And it was a fairly large study. I believe it was 1,000 patients um, in both the, the control group as well as the treatment group. Um, that said, there was another study in China uh, that, that also was recently published in The Lancet that showed that um, patients receiving remdesivir didn't really have a significant, statistically significant difference from patients who didn't. However, it's important to note that that trial, uh, they didn't complete enrollment for it. So um, it it ended early um, without enrolling as many patients as they wanted to because the case numbers were decreasing in China. So it's the jury is still out, but the, certainly the data that um, Dr. Fauci discussed today and that uh, NIAID has shared um, in a press release does seem encouraging, but I, I still hesitate to, um, you know, give it my full endorsement until I've at least seen uh, the actual data rather than just um, a press release about it. Makes total sense and uh, spoken like a, a true virologist in the field. So Dr. Rasmussen, thank you so much for your time. If people wanted to find you on social media and, and perhaps look into some of your work, how can they find you? So I'm on Twitter. I am Angie underscore Rasmussen, uh, R-A-S-M-U-S-S-E-N. Um, I'm also, I have a website too um, that just kind of collects all of my media appearances and, and writing. Um, that's AngelaRasmussen.org. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, for our listeners, please do uh, check out Dr. Rasmussen's work. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation and uh, stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks.